Imagine a world where innovation knows no bounds. At BAE Systems Fast Labs, we're pioneering advanced technology and defense research, shaping the future of safety and security. Explore our website to uncover a realm of cutting-edge projects, collaborations, and visionary thinkers. Whether you're a tech enthusiast, a defender of freedom, or just curious, Fast Labs is where groundbreaking solutions are born. Join us and be part of the future today. Visit www.baesystems.com slash fastlabs. Welcome to From the Crow's Nest, a podcast on electromagnetic spectrum operations, or EMSO. I'm your host, Ken Miller, Director of Advocacy and Outreach for the Association of Old Crows. Thanks for listening. Before we get to this episode, I want to quickly say Happy New Year and hope 2023 is off to a great start for all of our listeners. As we head into the new year, we're going to be making some changes aimed at helping our listeners engage a bit more directly. And the first out of the gate is on social media. You can now follow me and the show on Twitter at FTCN Host. We'll be giving you a heads up on some recordings, upcoming episodes, and providing a forum to discuss some of the topics that we cover here on the show, as well as you can submit questions, comments, and insights. So again, you can tweet or direct message me at FTCN Host. Now, on this episode of From the Crow's Nest, I am pleased to have with me a team from Draper. Here on the show, we wanted to dive deeper into microelectronic supply chain and technology challenges and opportunities that are on the horizon. So I invited Ms. Jen Santos from Draper and her team here to the show at AOC headquarters in Alexandria. Uh, due to the depth and breadth of the conversation that we had, we decided to turn it into two episodes. So this is part one of that conversation, and part two of that conversation will come out at our next regularly scheduled episode on January 25th. Draper is an independent nonprofit engineering innovation company. Uh, they focus on the design, development, and deployment of advanced solutions for the world's most challenging problems. Developing new technologies to safeguard the U.S. military electronics supply chain, they are supporting microelectronics through nearly all of the U.S. Department of Defense's activities. They enable such things as global positioning systems, GPS, uh, radar, communications, and C2, or command and control. Draper views domestic sourcing and manufacturing of semiconductors as a matter of national security. They are helping to build trusted foundries and a thriving microelectronic sector across the U.S. Uh, so they are deeply involved in nearly every aspect of this issue, and I wanted to have them on the show to go into more depth uh, than we often can in a regular episode. I was pleased to have with me Ms. Jen Santos. She is the Chief of Corporate Strategic Initiatives Office at Draper. Uh, Jen has more than 23 years of national security leadership experience in DOD, Congress, and the private sector, and has focused on this issue from many different perspectives over the course of her career. I was also pleased that she was joined by Senior Program Manager David Hagerstrom and Laboratory Fellow Jeremy Freifeld. Uh, David has been with Draper for over 20 years, developing highly customized, highly miniaturized microelectronic systems to address critical national security needs. Uh, he started his career at IBM Semiconductor division, where he contributed to several generations of world-leading memory and logic products. Dave witnessed firsthand the decline of U.S. leadership in manufacturing semiconductors and semiconductor packaging, and is involved in Draper's strategic initiatives to contribute to a resurgence of U.S. leadership in critical microelectronic manufacturing. Jeremy serves as Draper's technology portfolio leader for system assurance, including security, radiation hardening, fault tolerance, and system resilience technologies. 
Previously, he led all electronic development at Draper, giving him over 20 years of experience on microelectronics as well. So I want to thank Jen, David, and Jeremy for joining me here on From the Crow's Nest. Let's listen into our conversation. Thank you for joining me here on From the Crow's Nest. It's great to have you. Thank you. Great to be here. Great to be here. So I wanted to take a few minutes to kind of drill down uh, to really help us understand the problem. Uh, we recently had an episode on From the Crow's Nest where we talked about uh, a new book, Chip War by Chris Miller. Um, and, and reading that book, the thing that came out to me was that the, the history of this topic of microelectronics, the supply chain, the technology is so rich and reaches so far back into really our national consciousness for decades um, and has really uh, played a central role in industrial competitiveness and national security in almost every aspect of our lives. And we don't really even know it um, today. So, you know, we're here today, we recognize this problem of microelectronics and I wanted to turn to Draper here. Uh, and I'll start with you, Jen, you know, can you give us a little bit of insight into, okay, we're here in 2022, we have this huge problem, policy problem in front of us, industrial-based problem that we're trying to address. How did we get here? And and and, and how, how would you define the problem today? Yeah, no, Ken, uh, thank you so much for one, allowing Draper the opportunity to uh, spend some time with you this morning and to the Association of Old Crows for hosting such a prestigious conversation. I also want to thank my teammates, Dave and Jeremy here, who are um, excited to be a part of this conversation. So let, let's let's dive right in. What is the problem and how did we get here? So let's, can we define what is the U.S. industrial base? So uh, commercial industrial base is companies that create technologies and innovations that are vital to our livelihood. Defense and national security are companies that create technologies and innovation that are vital to our national security, such as technologies used by warfighters, critical infrastructure, to name a few. And then there's this term dual use, technologies that can be used in our livelihood and also national security and vice versa. So that's how the United States dissects its industrial base. How does China dissect its industrial base? So if you would look at um, U.S. companies perceive these as separate and distinct. You work for national security, you work for commercial, or you build something that can be applied in both cases, but with definitely different roles and restrictions. Uh, for example, U.S. companies typically have a federal business unit that markets to national security interests separate from their commercial business units. Unlike the United States and most Western nations, China commercial technologies and industries are inextricably linked in their defense efforts. The deliberate transfer of commercial technology and innovation to defense is not exclusive to China, is practiced by other adversarial states. Now, considering that, you think of industry partners having joint ventures with industry, other countries and other companies. And so that when you think of the microelectronics industrial base, it has um, gone through a lot of con uh, industry consolidation, right? So you've had the industry partners that are building certain parts, parts of the supply chain consolidating, as well as building relationships with um, other countries. And so you have this consolidation happening. You have this, um, you know, f this, you know, new fight towards who can make the smallest, fastest um, processor. And now you're where we are, right? The United States industrial base in the microelectronics industrial base has consolidated and has shrunk. Um, the 
the growth in those industrial bases um, focus on national security, which is where we're here to talk about. National security is one and a half percent of that market. So it isn't a driver. Yeah, I wanted to, to touch on that. When you, when you talk about the U.S. industrial base, you, know, you mentioned the, there's the commercial piece, there's the uh, national security piece. There's a level of complication to the U.S. industrial base. And you mentioned some of the consolidation that's happened and, and how that consolidation has affected the commercial national security or dual use aspects. Mm -hmm. And then the China piece, but then you have other Asian countries as well as, of course, countries in Europe, um, which complicated. So, you know, when, when we think about, you know, U.S.-China competition, keeping our eyes on Asia for a little bit, there's a lot of other Asian uh, partners and other uh, markets in there, you know, Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, obviously. Um, how do they approach this from, you know, is, is it more of a U.S. perspective? Do they figure out a way to kind of balance in terms of how they divide up their industrial bases? No, they, um, whatever they build for commercial is used in national security. And so you don't have this um, industrial base that's competing for either or, it's just for. Right. And so which allows to have a larger demand signal to support the problem. Mm -hmm. So I, I just wanted to mention that the um, the Asian countries uh, like Taiwan, which produce a lot of semiconductors, realized decades ago that they could use that to drive economic growth. Right. So forgetting the national security aspect, um, I'm going to back up one second and say the, the problem is that microelectronics dictate both any kind of adversarial advantage we have from national security perspective, so they completely dictate the capability of our weapon systems. And two, they're the number one economic driver for the world at this point. So seven of the top 10 of the largest market cap companies in the world are microelectronic companies. Um, and so not only are they important for national security, but they're also forgetting national security for countries that are trying to lift themselves up uh, economically uh, they're the they're the the driver, and you know the the Taiwanese, the the Asian countries realized this decades ago, and they invested heavily from a government subsidy standpoint into standing up the capability to allow the U.S. to offshore uh, microelectronic production, and so that has gotten them into you know a wealthy nation status, um, uh, and provided a different way of life for their entire citizenship. So. I think that, that it's both a national security and an economic competitiveness imperative for everyone uh, around the globe. That includes the Europeans, that includes you know the Chinese and the Asians, um, and it also includes us because as we see the industry slipping away, not only are we losing any kind of advantage that we currently enjoy from a national security perspective, but we're also losing that economic competitiveness advantage and uh, we won't be the pinnacle of technology or or R and D development anymore. Yeah. And so, so Jen, you 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 mentioned um, Jeremy that you know the, they made a decision decades ago to go in a particular direction. And Jen, you know, you talked about the consolidation and all the changes happening in the U.S. industrial base. Could you talk a little bit about how uh, this has evolved, where the, the U.S. Uh, competitiveness in microelectronics has evolved to it? while watching what's happening over in Asia and the decisions they're making over the decades, because obviously we've seen, we, we've been watching what they've been doing. This isn't a problem that's all of a sudden on our laps and we are not aware of it. We've seen it happening. We've seen it evolve in front of us. 
Um, so why now are we all of a sudden, you know, by and large alarmed that, okay, we have a problem we have to address? Well, for national security in the national security spaces, they don't buy a microelectronic. They buy a plane, a ship, a truck, right? A submarine. They don't buy a microelectronic chip. They don't, it's not an uh, aggregated demand signal. Um, and so what does that mean? A builder of any of those weapon systems uses their supply chain to build whatever they need to build. And so if they need a microelectronic, they will outsource that to an industry partner to go build it. Well, if you're outsourcing it to an industry partner, you could, you're, job is to drive down costs mm -hmm. and increase speed. And so if you can offshore some of those capabilities to other countries to fill the demand signal, now you've lost the opportunity to have that capability onshore, which as a result of that conversation, and Jeremy made a fantastic point of a lot of the national security is economic security in this space. It absolutely is. They are... They, Microelectronics sits at that intersection. And so as industry partners offshored their capabilities to do packaging at other places like TSMC, um, now you don't have that capability in the United States. Do you need to have that capability in the United States? So industry is debating, right? Um, the, 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 from a Draper's perspective, we consider that it, the supply chain, assured supply chain is instrumental to national security. And so we keep that as an important perspective and we understand what's going on in that industrial base. Um, so that offshoring has driven to results like the CHIPS Act, mm -hmm. right? The CHIPS Act is a result of um, industry, government realizing that we probably need to take, uh, invest similar to what countries did 10 years ago into the United States into microelectronics and focus that conversation. Um, you mentioned the CHIPS Act, so we can just touch on that a little bit, um, and I'm sure that we'll revisit it throughout uh, the conversation. But the, the CHIPS Act um, you signed into law in, in August uh, after uh, a lot of debate on Capitol Hill, and it's, it's a, a multi-billion dollar investment plan that, that covers not only the building of uh, manufacturing sites, but also tax credits and so forth. So what are some of the pieces of the CHIPS Act that you, you think are going to be the most instrumental in moving this conversation forward? Uh, Jeremy? The CHIPS Act, even though it's multi-billion, pales in comparison to uh, you know, foreign government investments. So both the European Union as well as you know, the Eastern um, uh, nations invest far more into their industry than the U.S. does. And that that's part of the original problem is that you know, the U.S. doesn't directly invest into our commercial industrial base, right? Mm -hmm. Capitalism, you know, market forces are what drive our development instead of direct government um, subsidies. And so the CHIPS Act is kind of like a trying to catch up, but it's, it's way smaller than, you know, what people are doing offshore. The CHIPS Act is a signal to industry, the executive branch and legislative branch from the legislative branch saying, all right, we're listening, okay. right? And so it's brought... It's brought a conversation to this country, right? Before that, was there a conversation about microelectronics vulnerabilities? I'm just gonna say, I used to work in the Pentagon and I would run around the building screaming, um, microelectronics is our number one national security risk. I did it all the time for years. Um, and so, because I saw what was happening, I saw, I read, I understood the Made in China 2025 and the Made in China 2020. I understood where they were going. And I understood that our industry partners here in the United States were saying, we're just gonna offshore what we're building. We're gonna offshore packaging, it's okay. But when that spigot is shut off, things will change. 
you have to start somewhere, and it's a right. good start. And the other thing mm-hmm. that the CHIPS Act does that I think is really great is that it intentionally prevents um, kind of the the money getting into uh, foreign control, mm-hmm. which is pretty unique from a, a legislative perspective, I believe. So yes, absolutely. So I think that that is one of the one of the good things about the CHIPS Act that I think we need to you know just follow it up with more money, m- you know, more investment, and more uh, development. And, and Jeremy, this is. Uh, I'll add to that. Adversarial capital, which you brought up a couple minutes ago, is complex and growing threat to the U.S. industrial and technological base. We not only need to illuminate the supply chain, we do need to illuminate the ownership chains. So as an example, the the CRS, Congressional Research mm-hmm. Service, has done this um, summary, the summary of the Made in China 2025, their clear Chinese industrial policy. Um, and that umbrella was introduced in 2015. It seeks to boost Chinese economic competitiveness by advancing China's position in the global manufacturing value chain, value chain, leapfrogging into emerging technologies and reducing reliance on foreign firms. So far, industry partners recognize this as a vulnerability. They won't, they won't take on adversarial capital, adversarial influence, which is again a great signal because in that bill, just like in the Small Business Administration reauthorization said, none of these funds can go to adversarial countries, right? Which is changing the conversation, Mm -hmm. right? Um, 20 years ago, industry was encouraged to offshore. Now industry partners are saying, wait, hold on, let me reassess. Yeah, I guess, uh, Jen, I, I liked your comment about the CHIPS Act being uh, a signal that that we're listening. Um, I've been around the microelectronics uh, industry for quite a few years, and and we didn't get in this situation quickly, where we have no competitive manufacturing here in the, in the United States, and we certainly won't get back uh, into in that position very quickly. And I think it's a good I think it's a good start. Um, I think you know, the driving force for going offshore was really, was really low cost. I was actually at IBM uh, from the early 80s uh, to the early 90s. And um, I saw sort of this, you know, this, this hump from being from IBM being very dominant in microelectronics. IBM was actually the largest American producer of chips but they were all for internal consumption for, for decades. So their name doesn't always come to the top of the list as sort of the, the leaders in semiconductors, but they were for many years. And um, in the uh, late eighties, IBM started doing packaging offshore in order to get their own chips packaged more, you know, less expensively. And that, that trend was driven by largely consumer demand, the consumer demand for low cost electronics and now I think there's a different tone uh, in this country. There's an awareness that, that uh, both economically and national defense-wise, um, there's other factors to consider besides lowest cost. So I think, I think we're on the cusp of something really important. And hopefully uh, going forward, you know, we really will see these changes we're talking about. Hello, everyone. I want to take a short break to thank BAE Systems Fast Labs for the continued support for our From the Crow's Nest podcast. I am pleased to be here today with Bill Watson, Chief Scientist at BAE Systems Fast Labs. Bill, it's great to be here with you. Now, BAE Systems Fast Labs is BAE Systems Research and Development and Production Organization. Can you tell us a little bit about Fast Labs as well as your background? 
Yes, and thank you for having me. Uh, BA Systems Fast Labs is dedicated to innovating, disruptive next generation solutions for the critical defense and intelligence challenges. Of course, electronic warfare is one of our key focus areas, but in addition to that, we also do research in autonomy and AI, sensing and response, advanced microelectronics, communications, and navigation. I've been working in the RF, that is radio frequency research community for over 20 years, a short time in the United States Air Force, followed by specific research and development. My work in the last 20 years has been singularly focused on DARPA research and within the last 10 years at BAE Systems Fast Lab specifically. Technology we work on spans sensor processing to high-level sense making, up to tactical and operational level autonomy and decision-making support. And one of the key differentiators about BAE Fast Labs is the research that we do uh, is intended to find its way to benefit the warfighter. This has been an important topic through many of our recent episodes here on From the Crow's Nest. Can you talk a little bit more about that technology? And for our audience, how does it change or affect our EW capabilities that we're trying to field? In our work with leading uh, DoD customers like DARPA or AFRL, we focus on developing technologies that will uh, advance future solutions from overcoming today's challenges to developing technologies never before thought to be possible. We then transition our technology to feelable products to benefit our warfighters through partnership with BA Systems Electronic Systems product lines. As a specific example, I thought I'd use a movie you may or may not be familiar with. It was called Battle Los Angeles. It was from 2011. And in that movie, aliens it had invaded. And what the characters in the movie found is that whenever they keyed their microphones on their radios, they could be easily geolocated and targeted. What the movie presented as science fiction for us is, in fact, science fact. This is the type of technology that we work on and exist today where the physics meets the real world. This sounds like absolutely fascinating work. What is the next area that you see for research and development? And if anyone is interested in learning more, how can they reach out to you? Well, we can't say too much because of the sensitivity of our work at classification levels. But in Fast Labs, we are always working on the future state. No matter what the future threats are, we will continue to focus on solving the hardest problems to benefit the warfighter. If you're interested in more information about Fast Labs, you can connect with us on our website at basystems.com slash fastlabs. Well, thank you, Bill, for joining me here on From the Crow's Nest. And now it's time to get back to our show. So I, I, I want to follow that uh, up real quickly because I was that was actually gonna I was gonna get into that a little bit to see is it is it enough because you know you you look at these large price tags and you almost become numb to them at some point. I was like, oh, it's 54, 60, 70 billion dollars. But when you think of like all of government annual appropriations and all that we're investing in a number of different programs, it, it doesn't seem that as significant. So, um, but I know that there's some, some subsidies for uh, manufacturing, there's some tax credits, there's some investment in R&D. So what are some of the pieces that you're you're most interested in to see how they evolve because obviously a lot of this is promised money authorizations in the future. There's some immediate money, but you know we're this is going to be an annual debate that we're going to be coming back to. So what are some of the pieces that you're looking at? So again, in national security, you don't buy a microelectronic. And so you buy a, a plane, a ship, a sub. And so investing $52 billion, which the CHIPS Act the portion for the microelectronics is $52 billion, $50 billion through commerce and $2 billion for uh, Defense Department. 
Um, is that enough? No, absolutely not. And it's not, I mean, I'm a prior appropriator. Throwing money at the problem doesn't solve the problem. It's got to be a collective understanding across industry, executive and legislative branch. The three have to agree that we have this problem and have to invest internally with the industry partners. The executive branch has to recognize the vulnerabilities associated with uh, not allow, not having this capability in the United States. And the legislative branch has to support um, but it has to be together. It can't be, you know, let's just put some money in the appropriations bill and it will solve that. H having done that before, it doesn't, it doesn't even move the needle because in truth, right, you'll build up an industrial partner like using the Defense Production Act, you'll build up an industrial partner and then the government won't even contract with those industry partners. And so it, it can't just be throw money at the problem. It has to be a recognition for industry to recognize that if their reliance is on a single or sole source supplier that could shut off the valve at any point in time based on whatever reason they come up with, it is a massive risk to that industry partner. That's step one with the industry side. The executive branch, that's the executive branch, not just the defense department, the whole executive branch has to recognize that if we lose this capability, we will then not have be able to re rebuild it back up again. And the legislative branch has to support the industry and executive branch to get this moving in the right direction. But it's $50 billion isn't gonna solve it. China is invested. There's so many news articles out about there about where they're making investments and what fabs they're building up. Um, they're they're talking at hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars. Um, but the difference that they have is they have direct and clear direction that their industry partner has to go do this. Whereas we're a free and open market economy, we absolutely would not do that. Uh, Jeremy, oh, I just wanted to add that you know the other ways that the governments and the the offshore industry uses their money is to procure technology from the U.S. So a lot of that money isn't going to build native capability, but it's going to just buy our capability and move it somewhere else. Mm -hmm. I, I cue Jen up for this because I know that she's very into the concept of integrated deterrence and adversarial capital. So, Jen? Yeah, no, I mean, it is all about following the money, right? Investing into these industry partners is really important right now. And having the industry partners... Um, and I use the partners word there on purpose. I do it all the time, whether it's the executive branch partners or legislative branch partners. It has to be a partnership, right? And together, collectively, the the um, government agencies that have the authorities to support and help, the Department of Justice has amazing authorities to support the industry in these cases. Department of Commerce, uh, U.S. Trade, USTR, DOD, um, have these have all these authorities to help industry maintain and uh, grow its competitiveness in this space. And integrated deterrence, which Jeremy brings up, is a passion of mine, which is really bringing those collective executive branch authorities together to pr protect and promote the U.S. industrial base and our partners and allies. I mean, it, we we just I just touched on partners and allies. There's so it's such an imperative that we bring our partners and allies into this conversation and um, share together. Again, they're investing as well. And when you collectively put it together, now you have a capability. But just a fifty billion dollar appropriation bill isn't gonna isn't enough. It's not gonna drive. It's not gonna change the conversation. Yeah. Um, want I want to touch on that a little bit more. You mentioned something earlier on, you know, DOD buy, buy, does not buy microchips, they buy planes. And, and there's a very similar argument that's made in our community uh, when we're looking at electromagnetic operations, you know, um, and, and we 
deal a lot in the world of multifunction systems where we're getting away from this idea of, of buying a, a, partic- a single box that does electronic warfare mm-hmm. nowadays. It's, it's a multifunction system that can do a lot of different things. And DoD has had a problem buying that because of the way that the acquisition system is set up. Uh, you know, it's, it's antiquated in, in a way that there is nobody that can say, I'm going to spend X amount on a, on, on a, on a, multifunction system that's going to do a lot of different things, but I'm only responsible for for this one particular capability or technology in it. So in that way of thinking, we've been pushing really hard for acquisition reform to kind of give us more flexibility in this. So this is a very similar situation. Do we have to think how rethink how DOD is buying things to allow them to have more flexibility in maybe not buying the chips, but buying that that space specific component technology so that they have greater flexibility in where they go across uh, numerous systems and across the services. Yeah, no, um, Ken, you're spot on. Does the DOD need to think differently about critical technologies and its weapon systems? Microelectronics is one component, but that's the component we're here to talk about. But does the DOD need to think about that? Yes. Does the executive branch need to think about that? Yes. Similar things, Department of Homeland Security, and what are they, What I mean, what? look what they're working on, right? Very similar, right? But it has to be an, not just an aggregation of demand, but aggregation of knowledge, and then um, a um, way to do things. There are industry partners out there looking at doing things like strategic sourcing. So mm-hmm. if I design... Um, this chip that can source a plane, a sub, or a truck. Now I don't need a different variation for each one, right? And then I can make it assured, right? Add cyber vulnerability protections, all these things to it, te- technology protections to, to, um, and use it in different formats. And so that's one way industry is looking at how do we um, aggregate the capabilities in a company um, to apply it to different problem sets for national security. Um, that's it, just one of the ways. Um, it, it, it's, it, it's interesting because you talk about aggregate demand. We focus a lot of that, you know, in terms of DOD. Or, um, but you mentioned Homeland Security, um, and and almost every other government agency. There, you and and even when you get into outside of DOD and military, you have uh, you know uh, critical infrastructure. There's a lot of similar aggregation of that same demand going on. Who is responsible for? aggregating all the aggregation that's happening out there to kind of say, hey, we, this is, this is a, there's a lot more we have in common than we have in differences. So who, who's so that So it's a great, I, all right, who owns that problem? Um, the National uh, Security Council and the National Economic Council are the two organizations that bring the branches of government together, the executive branches, the cabinet level together to talk about problems. So in my opinion, it sits there. Um, and, and, and I say that because, and I'm not saying they would do the acquisition, but they would be the one that understand it. And, you know, there's been a whole bunch of executive orders on this case to look at um, supply chain vulnerabilities, supply chain um, 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 problems. Uh, and so the, the recent one a year ago, so under the previous administration, there was one. In this administration, there's been looks at this. And microelectronics has been one of the top pro- mm-hmm. top problems, but then it gets back into, all right, so we're buying a plane, a ship, a truck, a satellite, a spaceship, right? I mean, you know, NASA, Homeland Security buying planes to protect the border. I mean, there are so many. 
So who who could understand that demand? I think the NEC could understand that demand. Um, and I would say, and then they could apply it strategically. Now, if you are on the industry side, let's flip this circle around. Does the industry want the National Security Council and the National Economic Council telling them what to do? No. Probably not. Yet. No way. No way. Um, and so if, if for a Draper's perspective, we want to build microelectronics. We want to design the most exquisite microelectronics and provide it for the most exquisite national security problems. But we're going to do that on such a small set. Um, but can we, as and if we collectively work with under, other industry partners, which we absolutely do, can we together do some type of tiering of them to apply one of these microelectronics, I always say this, and Jeremy and I giggle about it, um, to a pacemaker or to critical infrastructure or to a nuclear weapon, right? Could we design capabilities that could accommodate all of those? Well, that's cool. what the dual use or the military civil fusion program in China does. And I think that's why partnerships are so critically important. When we think partnerships, we think government to industry, but we also forget when you have really good partnerships, that industry to industry piece can also stimulate Absolutely. creative solutions apart from what the government, wherever the government is involved in, mm -hmm. um, just by, you know, increasing the crosstalk and cross-pollination that happens there. But you know the government is very stovepiped in those mm -hmm. areas. So if you go from commerce to NIH to DOD to DOC to USD, they're all functioning, well-functioning organizations, but they're not, their incentives aren't to aggregate or to coordinate. Their incentives are to protect their rice bowls mm -hmm. and and solve their problems. They're not, there's no interconnective weave between there. That's what we think is a great opportunity. Go Jeremy. Oh, yeah, and we fight, we fight this battle every day because uh, as was quoted earlier, I think Jen said it, that electronic demand from a DOD perspective is one and a half percent. But recently the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering um, published a, a slide deck where the, if you aggregate the government demand, if you include FAA, DOD, uh, critical infrastructure across all of government and look at government as an enterprise, they drive approximately 23% of domestic demand for microelectronics. Which, I mean, you can think about, like, the government's a huge entity, even just as a, you know, uh, a PC procurement part for all of its employees, it's pretty huge in comparison to, you know, commercial companies. And so... Getting to that level where you have, oh, you know, 23, 24% of domestic demand, then you can start making an impact uh, that isn't, that isn't like um, contrary to commercial interests, but to, you know, um, in some kind of symbiotic way, work with the commercial industries in order to ensure that that 23, 24% of electronics is produced domestically uh, and with some assurance. Yeah. And can I add on to Jeremy's point there? It, Having going from a one and a half to a 23% um, ownership of that capability is game changing. So mm -hmm. now you have industry that is interested in investing because they see a clear demand signal from the government, not just the individual agency. Well, one of the changes that we has gotten some talk in, in the AOC uh, that we're looking at closely is this, you know, how, how will this, uh, the CHIPS Act kind of stimulate this drive for talent mm -hmm. Uh, in microelectronics, because you know you can put a lot of money into anything, but if you don't have the people, the right people in the right places, um, so this talent development is, is going to be important. And um, according to to the bill, there, there's I guess an establishment of a national semiconductor technology center that's going to be responsible for this, working in partnership. Um, what I want talk a little bit about some of the challenges with 
um, talent development, um, and, and what are some of the things that you're looking at to help with address that problem? Well, I, um, microelectronics encompass several, what, I, what I'll call for the moment, sectors. People talk about chips. So silicon wafers become silicon chips. Uh, TSMC is the big, you know, the big kahuna right now in terms of manufacturing state-of-the-art silicon. But silicon needs to be connected to something. And so when we talk about semiconductor packaging, it's all about that connecting the silicon to something useful. Now, generally speaking, you're talking about connecting a piece of silicon to a circuit board. If you pop open your cell phone or your toaster, you'll see a little green board in there with components on it. That circuit board technology has also eroded in this country. Um, so just like it's very difficult to source chips, it's very difficult to, to source those circuit boards that have been treated as a commodity, but have actually advanced technically very much in the last decade or so. So um, I have uh, started some work with a, uh, an organization uh, associated, well, it's part of the University of New Hampshire. University of New Hampshire has a center for advanced manufacturing. And there is a New Hampshire company that is arguably the leader in circuit board manufacturing in the United States right now. Uh, and uh, Draper is working with both of them to add circuit board technology and advanced circuit board technology into the curriculum at the University of New Hampshire. And that's just one example. There's, there's collegiate workforce development programs funded by the, by the Department of Defense that are really, I think, gaining a lot of momentum. Yeah, and so uh, we have a huge issue with uh, talent recruitment, um, both in the defense industrial base, but also in the commercial industrial base. That's one of the reasons that, uh, you know, the kind of the dominoes fall, right, is because, you know, if the, if the um, manufacturer happens offshore, and then when you talk about manufacturing larger systems that include the microelectronics, like iPhones, right, there's just, they don't have enough engineering people in the United States to pull off iPhone production here in the U.S. And so it's just easier from a scale perspective to go offshore. So there's a whole host of... Um, you know, kind of development programs and especially um, indirect subsidies for companies that are working on workforce development. Uh, but I, I think the funny thing is, you know, one of the things from the CHIPS Act uh, is that they developed the draft national strategy on microelectronics research and development. And they ask, you know, you know, they outline how they're going to um, stimulate uh, venture capitalism and uh, commercial investment into microelectronics. But from a work workforce perspective, they're not addressing the individuals. Um, and so one of the responses that Draper provided is like, you know, other countries are directly subsidizing specific degrees um, based on economic and defense needs, right? So is it less expensive at a public university, for example, to get an electrical engineering degree than it is to get um, uh, English literature degree? Right now it isn't. Um, and so those are the types of kind of very different against the grain from the traditional um, U.S. education paradigm that we're going to have to think about in the near future in order to maintain economic competitiveness in this space. Because there's no way we can do it with the amount of individuals we have now. Um, and if you look at the, the kind of university departments 
what you see is there, like even from, you know, 25 years ago when I graduated, the departments of engineering are much, much smaller now than they were then. Mm -hmm. It's gotten to the point where, you know, we're, you know, as a company, we're fighting over dozens of, of engineers as opposed to hundreds like uh, in previous years. Jen? Yeah, and so at Draper, we have a program called Draper Scholars, and it's really to offset the cost for folks to get specialty degrees to support national security. And I mean, I know it's small in the big scheme of things for the country, but it's an investment into offsetting the costs for students to go get these degrees. Um, we we work with, Dave mentioned um, New Hampshire, we work with a whole bunch of universities um, across the country to um, help in this workforce development. But again, it's gotta be all three of those branches mm -hmm. coming to that same conclusion, right? Offsetting costs for students to get their degrees, absolutely. Having job opportunities ahead of them. And so, you know, there's just not as many folks graduating with these engineering degrees. Um, the demand signal for those jobs is way higher than the supply can full, fulfill. And because of the American, sorry, sorry, Jen, because of the American University uh, um, prominence, you know, uh, for the defense industrial base, recruiting U.S. citizens with these specialized degrees uh, to work national security programs is is exponentially harder than than the commercial industry had. So the graduates um, from U.S. universities uh, are, you know, a, a diverse mix of people, but they often take their education offshore now because that's where the jobs are. Mm -hmm. And so as that flows offshore, um, we just have less and less uh, both U.S. citizens, but also, f you know, foreign talent in the U.S. to kind of man the microelectronic domestic production. At the top of the episode, we mentioned Chris Miller's book, uh, Chip War. And, and, and in the book, uh, he tells a story of Sony's uh, Akio Morita talking about kind of uh, Japan's investment plan. And he's like, you know, while U.S. was, he quotes him as saying, while the United States was busy creating lawyers, uh, Japan has been busier creating engineers. Um, and this is something that was a multi-decade initiative by them. What can we do to build a multi-decade initiative where we're focused on building engineers here in the United States more so than we have been in the past? Well, so there's probably multiple angles of attack. I'm encouraged by sort of the thousand points of light possibility. I think there's growth in STEM education in, in communities. Um, I think individual com companies have an interest in developing the workforce, certainly not just Draper. Um, but as Jen and Jeremy have said, there's also a top-down policy kind of reckoning uh, that's gonna be required too. Yeah, and, and to expand on that, I mean, I think that, you know, the cost of a university education in the country has gone up uh, at such an uh, infl inflationary rate compared to, you know, the average wage and, and things like that, that you're going to have to do um, either, con you know, control that in some way, but especially for these uh, specialized degrees like electron electrical engineering, uh, mechanical engineering, you're going to have to have some type of... Uh, uh, what's the word I want? Incentive for students to choose that versus, you know, philosophy and uh, medicine, for instance. So. It's, and it starts at such a young age. It doesn't just start at the college phase, right? And so our, 
in order to change the hearts and minds of students in school right now, you have to get to them and and show them that, you know, when I talked about commercial national security and dual use, folks, um, very the, the percentage of folks wanting to be in national security continues to decrease, right? And so if they if 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 you get to the hearts and minds of them and describe this can be applied to X you know, a um, pacemaker, as I said, or an automotive industry partner or a critical infrastructure. Oh, now it's a different conversation. But it has to start at such a young age. I know the Defense Department is investing in things like the Industrial Base Analysis and Statement. That portfolio is looking at project manufacturing. It's looking at how do we build more production lines and bringing in students at younger age and teaching them and evolving them. Um, And so, you know, you, you have to you have to start at a younger age to expose. You know, one of the jokes I've said is this is on the software side of it. But um, when you have to learn a language in school, when you're going through your education, your um, uh, K through 12, you have to learn a language. Why can't it be Java or Python? Um, because that's a totally different language, and it drives a different behavior and a different way of thinking. And so we got to get to the younger younger students, educate them, offset their costs and incentives to go into these really complicated uh, portfolios and then um, um, and then uh, offer them opportunities that aren't just national security. Jeremy, I just want to say from a Draper perspective, we would prefer Rust as opposed to Java, for instance. But, <laughs> but anyways, uh, the other thing, I think the Defense Department is actually doing a really good job in investing in the universities themselves. So um, I'm, you know, Dave mentioned UNH, but I'm going to shout out to Purdue University, mm-hmm. Georgia Tech, um, Vanderbilt, uh, uh, UC Berkeley. So the Defense Department and you know is really investing into the workforce development in these programs, in the educators, uh, directly funding educators to you know um, uh, develop curriculums and stuff that are applicable to the defense industrial base. And I think that uh, you're going to see you see a lot of this. For instance, Intel used to have a very large university program. They've kind of offshored. They have a very large university program in Brazil now, which is very strange. But um, a very large university program to kind of uh, you know, indoctrinate people into the Intel um, methodology and way of way of working at the professor level. And so I think that you're going to have to have that top-down approach where you do that, that public-private partnership that comes out like the National Semiconductor Technology Center. That will conclude this episode of From the Crow's Nest. I want to thank my guests, Jen Santos, Jeremy Freifeld, and David Hegerstrom for joining me here for part one of our discussion. Part two will be released on January 25th. Uh, You can learn more about Draper by visiting their website at draper.com. Also, don't forget to review, share, and subscribe to this podcast. Uh, We always enjoy hearing from our listeners, so please take some time to let us know how we're doing. That's it for today. And again, you can follow me on Twitter at FTCN Host. Thank you for listening. Fast Labs, powered by BAE Systems, is at the forefront of advanced technology and defense research, development, and production. They're pushing boundaries, breaking barriers, and innovating for a safer world. Check them out at www.baesystems.com/fastlabs.